Welcome to Breaking the Couch, a weekly conversation demystifying what happens in and behind the therapy scene to support your healing journey. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Doughton, a licensed clinical professional counselor, a certified school psychologist, and a trauma specialist with Playfully Psyched. And I'm Dr. Joharchi with Soft Heart Psychology, a licensed clinical psychologist. We're here aiming to provide you with mental health tools to address the cycle of generational trauma across the age span from infancy and childhood to adulthood. For more information, visit our Instagram page at Breaking the Couch or our website, breakingthecouch.com. While we hope you love listening to and learning from our podcast, it's not a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. All right. So today we're back and we thought it'd be really good to talk about trauma and the effects it has on the body and what that feels like for patients, clients, and even us as therapists, you know? That's right, Dr. Doughton. You know, I was just thinking a little bit about how it was a little hard to get ready and grounded for our talk today because I had just done my business taxes and it's the first time I see your face. I can hear your voice. I know what you, I know that you know what I mean, right? So it's the first time I've done business taxes where that's been my full job, my Mm full-time income. And yes to that face and that voice. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of think about some of the things we've been talking about over the years for trauma recovery in the body and implement that myself. I gave myself a few minutes before we met, um, just trying to kind of be here and be now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I made that sound in that face because it's can be really scary to do your taxes. Right. And especially if you have any prior issues or feelings about financial stability, um, scarcity, Mm -hmm. and to be a business owner and have all those responsibilities solely on you. Um, it can be really dysregulating in the body, right? It can really be activating to your nervous system, your parasympathetic nervous system, and really hard to stay in your body when it feels so uncomfortable in that way, right? That's right. That is so validating. And that's exactly kind of what we were talking about a few weeks ago was we were consulting about a trauma recovery case, and we were coming up with the this topic of either feeling so much in the body or not feeling nearly anything where like, for example, you step on a toothpick and it goes through your foot and you're just like, I don't feel pain right now. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about some of those extremes and kind of how those show up in the body. Mm -hmm. I mean, for sure. Right. One of the things that I have, you know, hear a lot from patients is I'm fine. I'm okay. Or Mm -hmm. someone who is describing a really horrific traumatic event, um, matter of factly, and they're trying to think back to that version of themselves that actually experienced the event. And they're just like, no, I think everything was okay. That didn't seem scary to me. And then you have to put it into perspective. And you're like, okay, let me get this straight. Um, you were running from someone and you locked the door um, to get away from them. And there was no fear. Mm-hmm. Right? Why do we lock doors? To protect us, to keep mm-hmm. things out, to keep things in. 
and that realization of like, oh, wow, maybe that was so traumatic. That was so hard. I can't bring myself or my body can't even bring myself to feel that right now, to resonate with that. It has to stay in this cognitive space where things are fine, where things are okay. Um, and while that's a protective factor, it's not going to allow you to process the trauma and it's not going to get you to a place where you're actually feeling some trauma healing and trauma recovery. I love that you bring that up. That reminds me a lot of what we've talked about with, you know, kind of looking at those protections as a word protections as, a, as opposed to diagnoses, right? Mm -hmm. You were the first person that brought this to my attention that we don't have to be following this colonialized view and perspective that we were taught in our Eurocentric programs to sort of perpetuate. And hey, you know, I'll just name it. I'm the white girl in the room. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. So I'm very much a part of that. And I would like to, wherever I go, acknowledge that privilege and name the elephant in the room and hopefully bring a little bit of decolonization to therapy by not constantly diagnosing someone because their protections are showing up in a way that, you know, for example, has them put stuffed animals around them when they go to sleep or mm -hmm. lock the door, like you said, or these things that we don't necessarily want to not only stigmatize label, but also like tell them to break down when they may very well protect someone. And if those protections are no longer showing up in the way that the person needs them to or no longer serving them, then we could talk about that. That's that's the whole point of therapy. That's uh, kind of fun and juicy. Like we could talk about how those protections no longer serve you, um, but we don't need to diagnose them. We don't need to sort of demonize them. Oh, for sure. For sure. That statement you just said reminds me of, I don't know what, what book it was. It was one of the books that we read together. And the line is something along the lines of therapists need to be careful about taking down fences and taking down walls until they have a full understanding until and unless they have an understanding of why the wall was built there in the first place. Right. Because just because a wall is there and we think like, oh, you, you don't need that wall anymore. But what if they do? Right. Right. And so I actually like to, you know, think that I help people not just tear down walls when they need them, but to sometimes first create a gate, create a doorway, create a window, create a little bit of um, a space where things can get in and they can get out if they need to. Because what people forget is or don't know sometimes is that with trauma, it kind of locks you in that space, Right. So yes, there are walls that are there that are protecting you. There are these protective factors that you are creating. But those protective factors can sometimes also be keeping you from good things, right? Keeping you from the relationships that you want, keeping you from the parenting style that you want to have, that you deserve and that your child deserves. All these different things are locked because of that wall, right? They are blocked away. Um Yes, in diagnosing, it has its place, absolutely. Um, in some cases, I guess. But in general, it's about helping the person, you know, realize their true self and show up in a way that makes them feel authentic and seen and protected and safe. Um, and we don't always need a diagnostic label, right, from this colonized perspective. Um, 
in order to do that, right? The It's not like certain medications and diagnosis where you have to have this medication mapped on with this diagnosis. Therapy in psychological illness isn't always that way. Um, yeah, go ahead. This is some of the reasons why whenever I'm referring to you, right? Mm -hmm. So I say, oh, go to Dr. Doughton. Like, she'll be a great therapist if you're in Maryland, what is it, Missouri or Florida, right? Mm -hmm. And this is why I say I would go to her if I could <laughs> because <laughs> you see people in that way. You don't, I, I really appreciate that you have this refreshing view of not breaking down people's fences, mm -hmm. you know, just like that circle of security book. I think you're referring to, ah, it's like, there you go. <laughs> it's like, um, exactly that. Right. And so the old school therapy, or at least the, the type of therapy lenses that I was. You can name it. Yeah, about. exactly. You can name it. You can name it. Those, we those went to the same program. Were questionable. Mm -hmm. We went. One of the programs we went to was the same one, and mm -hmm. much before that as well. Um, most of the the therapies I was taught about um, had that perspective of like, okay, what is the behavior, and what do we need to sort of break down? Mm -hmm. And so I love this perspective of we don't know why that fence was built. We don't know why that protection was built. We don't need to break it down. Just, we don't need to. And then you're also bringing in the sort of flip side of that, of what could we be welcoming in mm -hmm. if we address X, Y, or Z, or if we look at that fence, mm -hmm. if we explore in a safe therapeutic rapport, we explore that um, in a way where you're not feeling demonized or penalized or, or diagnosed um, so I, I really do appreciate that. And then it also makes me think a little bit more about, you know, some of the stuff that we learned together about what trauma, how trauma shows up in the body, right? Mm -hmm. So going back to that point that we were talking about where sometimes people either have that, you know, oh, I'm fine. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, the whole door locking thing that you just brought up so nicely, or pain feels so big and is sometimes unfortunately ignored mm -hmm. um, by, by professionals, as we know. Mm -hmm. And so some of the things that we do behind the scenes as therapists, you know, is, you, you know this, Dr. Dalton, but I work sometimes to support people preparing for gender affirming surgeries, right? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes people will be like, hey, listen, I have this really funky relationship with pain and the way pain shows up in my body. And so we will literally, I'm not a big homeworky person, but we'll literally write out their pain now and during the surgery mm -hmm. so that they can kind of have an eye on things. It's almost like bringing reparenting into their gender affirming recovery process. So they are trying to recover from their surgery and we just want them to keep an eye on it because they may have been told not to believe where their pain is at because of their traumas, or they may have been told to sort of gaslight themselves or tell themselves a different story. So we just ask them to like write it out so that they can kind of see where they're at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I love that you're talking about this. And I think we should bring in one, you know, a couple definitions of trauma because we've been using this word so much. And it just made me think about, um, because I was starting to conceptualize your gender affirming cases that are, you know, going through gender affirming surgeries as trauma, right? <laughs> and I'm like, well, wait, mm -hmm. if I talk about that, they're gonna be like, how does she get trauma from that? 
Um, so one of the basic definitions of trauma that I use from a psychological perspective is any time that your nervous system is dysregulated could register as trauma for you, right? Significantly dysregulated. And part of that is because one of the portions of your brain um, that is largely in charge of fear, like the fear center of your brain, your amygdala, right? And that starts to control things like your breathing, your heart rate, um, your strength. It's going to pump adrenaline through your, through your bloodstream if it's needed. Um, when that's activated, right? Part of your brain thinks, oh my gosh, we are about to die. We are in danger. I do this little funny thing with my patients. I'm like, your amygdala says, oh my gosh, we're in danger. We're in danger. Right. And it starts sending off all these signals, right? Like, okay, we gotta, we have to fight for survival. We gotta freeze because that thing is gonna think we're, we're playing dead, or we have to be as really nice as possible so that it'll leave us alone, right? Or we come out swinging, right? We gotta fight it off. Um, when you've experienced that, right, then your amygdala is kind of storing that information. So that was danger. Mm, that really was danger, right? And so it's stored as trauma. And with people who are, you know, transgender or going through gender affirming surgeries, they've often had times in their life, not always, but they've often had times in their life where that level of discomfort in their body, the one that they were born in, um, is extremely dysregulating to their nervous system. Mm -hmm. Where their amygdala, which is not a super sophisticated part of the brain, right? But where that amygdala is like, oh my gosh, we're in danger in this body, right? And you can't, because it's not like an acute trauma, something that happens really, really quickly, you can't be in that heightened state forever. So sometimes you got to go numb. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's super cool that you do that with your patients to kind of outline identifying what's happening in their body, because we can become really disconnected depending on the type and the frequency and the duration of the trauma that we traumas that we've experienced. That was a beautiful explanation. I would just want to kind of cut and share that with both. <laughs> Right. And so to the point, I love what you said about the amygdala. And it was such a compassionate view that really kind of touches my heart of what can happen for someone in their body. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely correct. And, you know, it also has me thinking of the part of what we said about just people saying that they're fine, even though they have a toothpick in their foot mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever pain coming up in their body. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I spoke for a second to my whiteness. I'm also Iranian American. And, you know, uh, there's a saying, it says like, and it means don't cry. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's like a thing that's said to like, I could, I, it's just a thing that you say, and it's said to be kind. I think, I think that's mm -hmm. where it's supposed to come from. It's like, you know, oh, you're sad or something happened, like Gary and Echo, and like, it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And it, mm -hmm. it's okay if it's not. It's okay that you're not fine. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I also love about therapy is kind of debunking and sort of breaking down the Gary and Echo and the don't cry message. Because when we do cry, we're actually releasing toxins. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And it's not just that we want people to be able to express themselves, especially folks who are surviving traumas, but there's a, literally a chemical release of toxins when we cry tears. They've compared when we cry tears from peeling an onion to when we cry tears from an emotional reason. And there's mm-hmm. actually toxins in the in the latter, in the ones where we're just crying because we're sad or because we're in pain or whatever. So I like the idea too of supporting someone on their expression journey, on their journey to cry, to feel all their feelings, their anger, their sadness, whatever else is there other than fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I love that. And I can resonate with that. So you know me as a black woman, um, really strong advocate for my community and you know, black children, black women, black people in general. And us getting the, uh, finally growing into the possibility of being allowed to express all of our emotions, right? Um, there's still work to be done there, but I'm a part of that that fight for that. Um, but that I'm not going to try to pronounce the word you just said, but <laughs> the sentiment behind that is similar. It makes me think of, oh, you're okay. You're okay. Right. So someone comes to you, mm-hmm. a child, I'm going to put this in child perspective, but a child comes to you sad or hurt, or they just like scraped their knee and they're, they're one in comfort. And it's like, oh, no, no, you're okay. Right. Or there's this belief that if you just could turn away and don't pay attention when a child falls and cries and they won't cry either. And they might not. But does that mean that they didn't hurt? Right. Just because you don't express something, you know, with your verbal expression, your facial expression, doesn't mean you didn't feel it. Right. And so instead of turning away and pretending like it didn't happen, you know, look and wait. You know, and then you can ask, you can check in, right? You don't have to go gushing over like, oh, you're hurt. You don't have to label that if you don't know if they are, but you don't turn away from it either because turning away from it teaches us that it is not okay for us to express this. This is not welcome here, right? And it creates that mask of like, hey, I'm fine because that's all I'm allowed to be. And all of that becomes this internalized process of trauma where they're not processing their feelings, they're not allowed to process their feelings. And, you know, we, we end up here together. Mm-hmm. So I love that you brought that up. Um, so there's so many cultural pieces to understanding trauma, expressing it, what it looks like varies. And all these things aren't gonna be covered in diagnostic approaches. Not very well. Okay, so thank you for sharing that. And I really appreciate hearing your perspective on that as a Black woman, as you said. Mm -hmm. And not to put you on the spot, so totally jump in and let me know if I am. (laughs) (laughs) And you know when someone says that, they're about to put you on the spot. They're about to put you on the spot, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So feel free to share what you'd like about what that's like for you. Mm-hmm. The it's fine thing. Mm-hmm. The it's fine thing. Got it. Um, so I'm gonna, you know, be honest. And I was fortunate enough in certain ways that my upbringing with my mother. Um, very rarely do I have memories of being asked to stifle my emotions. Right. Um, she let me be who I was. So I was really fortunate in that way. 
Um, now, yes, as I got a little bit older, like towards, I was a sensitive child and really empathic about other people's experiences. Um, that I it did get hear the like, oh, you're so sensitive. Why oh, you're so sensitive, right? From a lot of a lot of other voices and people in the community and um started to learn like okay that's not what people want to see but that never really changed who I was now when we enter into school environments and college when going to um, predominantly white institutions or PWIs um it wasn't and then the workforce right that is when it became so obvious that who I am is not allowed to show up right mm. because of the skin that I am in and especially when I became went natural with my hair so I would you know growing up I had a relaxer for a while in high, in high school and so when I made that transition to be natural at the time and it was just like a, I had an afro loud and proud and big and beautiful um and then, you know, transitioning to my beautiful long locks that I have now. But those types of things, those were stepping stones in my life where I had to make a conscious decision because while now black hair is starting to become a little bit more accepted in its natural states, um, this is, you know, many years ago, decades ago, and it wasn't, it wasn't like that. Um, so that was hard and challenging in learning how to code switch and then coming to the realization that it doesn't matter how I show up, people are going to perceive me how they want to perceive me through their lens of racism, through their lens of misogyny, through misogynoir, right? You know, they're going to perceive me how they're going to perceive me no matter how I show up. And so that's when I was like, oh, I have to become part of this fight to allow Black women, Black people to be themselves authentically. Um, because no one is, like I said, allow before in that like air quotes, because the systems that are set up are not safe for us. And we do have to fight to make that right, unfortunately, right? That's not, it's neither here nor there, but you can't stifle yourself forever to try to fit or get a seat at someone else's table. It's like, no, build your own table, build your own system, fight the one that's there and, and go for it. And all those are, some of those are trauma experiences, right? Like you, I don't believe that you can be a black person in this country or in the world and not have experienced some trauma, even if you didn't internalize it that way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so when I see, you know, especially like when I work with moms or really young children, black moms or really children, um, I'm like, we're talking about the strong black woman trope because that's how it shows up, right? We have this double-edged sword where we're looked at as being so strong. And then that means that we are not deserving of nurturance and care because we're strong, right? And then it's a way that we also gaslight ourselves. Well, because I'm strong, I'm I, you know, being sad or being hurt or being in need is weak. It's like, no, no, put that trope down, feel your feelings, it's okay. Um, I get it. We can't, you know, it's still a work in progress and we can't, we still can't, we don't have the privileges as the average white woman has right, to be able to just right. to be, um, but that doesn't mean in our protected spaces and our safe spaces that we can't show up and feel our feelings. So I hope that answered your question, but that's how it is for me, right? Understanding that maybe my start was different 
but my lived experience through, you know, at least through middle school and up in the world. I mean, obviously I can go on for days for race stuff, even in elementary school. But I think when it really, when I understood what was happening was high school, college and entering the workforce, those places where it's like, oh, you being you is not what they want, but you not being you is also not going to work. So (laughs) yeah. Yes. I really appreciate you for answering, you know, kind of from your experience, uh, authentically you, and you did thoroughly answer it. And it makes me think a little bit more about what you had said about PWIs and systems causing these racial traumas. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then it makes me also think of the question in the first place, why ask if you're not willing to stick around and hear more than I'm fine? And so like, are the askers of that question willing to stick around and really no. be authentic? No, they're not. <laughs> like, no. No. no, I mean, I, I am right? going to cut you off because no, mm-hmm. we know the answer to that. You know, I've ha- I have like mm-hmm. social media videos talking about this, right? No, right. especially not in the US. We use it as hello and hi. We use how are you, how are you feeling, how are things going as hi. Not doesn't acceptable. Have any, no, it's just a greeting. It doesn't have any actual meaning to it. And so I think I, mm-hmm. I say that we should throw the question out unless it's with people yeah. that you care about and that you really want to know the answer and then you sit and listen. And then we work to show up authentically and give the answer a response. Yeah. Um, but no, it doesn't. No, 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 no. Uh, and I say safe spaces because one of the institutions that I went to wasn't a PWI. It was an HBCU, a historically black college university. And that was amazing. Like I can't even put it into words uh, right now and articulate in the way that I want to, but it was amazing. I just remember feeling seen and I could show up as me, not to say there aren't problems in all, all places, but I remember the first time I wore at the time my hair was was natural Afro form. And sometimes I would wear it in two strand twists and then I'd wear the twists out. So they call it a twist out. And this was not a popular style when I was wearing it. Okay. This is a super popular style now. It is not, was not a popular style then. Um, and so I was apprehensive because I had only been in PWIs. I had only been in workspaces mm-hmm. that were, I was, you know, one of a couple black people or people of color. And the dean of my college saw me and stopped me. First of all, you know, I had, at this point, I had a bachelor's degree. I had a couple, I had a, at least a, an associate's degree as well in an unrelated field, had some certificates mm-hmm. and I was in a graduate program and I'd never met a dean of a college. Like I never, had never. Great. Just like walking. That was, like, <laughs> that was the first thing. And then they like stopped me to, so I maybe had seen them, but they had never stopped me. She stopped me and she said, oh my gosh, your hair is beautiful. Mm-hmm. I just was like, I probably could have cried that moment, but I just felt so seen. Like mm-hmm. here you are, this super important in person, this beautiful black woman. You see me, you're not criticizing, you're, you're not calling my hair unprofessional using these, you know, professional ability politics nonsense. You just see me, right? Um, we don't get we don't get those opportunities. We don't get those spaces mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, but I'm working to change that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you for that. Mm-hmm. I, I see you doing that. 
on those TikToks, the the YouTube videos in your therapy sessions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we so appreciate you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I am going to put you on the spot. You want to put me on the spot a little bit. I'm going to throw this back at you. Please do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so like hearing about this and, you know, framing your understanding of trauma, right? Right. What is it like for you, you know, to be a clinician working in this field and understanding trauma as it is? Right. So that is such a good question. Um, There are so many things that, you know, in our last podcast, we had talked about where you and I had met and then (laughs) you were like, ditch the bus, come with me. We're going to talk a little bit more. And then after we met as like kind of just knowing one another, we started this trauma consultation group. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where you were like, I said last time, you know, blew my mind open Mm -hmm. to the idea of trauma and where trauma is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you know, um, it was really clear to me how after, of course, you taught me like, here's trauma, here's trauma, here's trauma. It was very clear to me, like how trauma could show up in, you know, medical trauma, racial traumas, all these things. With that being said, it took me a while longer to notice two things. What they talk about in the body keeps a score and what they talk about in the deep as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So the body keeps a score. Remind me who's the author. Bessel, Dr. Bessel Vandal Kulk. Vander Kulk. Oh, so good with that. Yes. <laughs> and then The Deepest Well by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. Right? right. So these two books and your persistent um, kind of hanging in there with me helped me realize this other type of trauma that I was just like, for I, I can explain why. But like for many years, just not as open to. And it's like this emotional trauma, this emotional neglect. And mm-hmm. so while someone may walk around in the world with all these layers of privilege, right? Like for me, mm-hmm. white privilege, cis privilege, mm-hmm. cisgender privilege, right? So mm-hmm. all these layers of privilege that I definitely want to identify, we also learned about this emotional neglect. And I just that was like, what, what is this? Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, spoiler alert, right. Um, (laughs) spoiler alert, I'll put it in the description. We'll talk about it here, but spoiler alert for the deepest. Well, I won't say any specifics. It's her story to tell, but Dr. Nadine Burke Harris talks a little bit about her self-reflection, uh, with acknowledging emotional traumas and what that was like for her. Mm-hmm. And I had a similar experience where I noticed that I had those traumas and I never was acknowledging that within myself. And so I couldn't acknowledge that within my clients to the mm-hmm. fullest extent. So you can talk to me about medical traumas, gunshots um, that, you know, like that you heard or witnessed. Right. And so you could talk to me about the overt stuff. But what about the stuff of being told not to cry? Or what about the stuff of not being hugged growing up? Mm. These are significant things. Skin hunger. Skin hunger. That made me think of um, Dr. Bruce Perry's yeah. The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, right? Not being held, not having a, that touch. I'm always talking about like physical touch and how important that is in young children, um, for all of us really, but and for young children especially, right? That's neglect. It's emotional trauma. Right. 
Right. And so that is something else that I had to look into a little bit deeper. Right. And so just being so grateful for growing up in a two parent household that did provide for me food and shelter and a lot of safety and love in the ways that they knew, I did not even come to the conclusion that all of my emotional needs were not met. Mm. And that hit really deep in my body, you know, and it's the coolest part. There's a lot of cool parts to that, but one of the coolest parts is kind of learning how that can come from intergenerational um, emotional neglect. And, you know, whether that comes from various wars or genocides in one's countries of origin or culturally or, or whatever complexities come up there is really nice to take a non-blameful look at what families were not given or what they were given mm-hmm. and how that kind of trickles down. Mm-hmm. And then of course, how we can kind of interrupt that cycle now. Mm-hmm. And so there are traumas at every stage, age, like background, like wherever you're coming from, they are there. And so for me, it was just, it just took some time to kind of notice that. And I think sometimes with therapists and, and correct me if I'm off, maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but I believe that sometimes with therapists, they may not have been able to do the full extent of their own work where they can see those things. Mm-hmm. And so it might bring up stuff for them. When somebody says, hey, I keep picking the same partner or I grew up in such and such household where I had X, Y, and Z, I had everything. Mm-hmm. but I didn't get hugs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if the therapist hasn't done their own work, I wonder if they're really going to be able to meet the client where they are. And I wonder if they're really going to be able to see that. So maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but I do wonder if we have yet to fully understand trauma in its full scope, if we could really meet people where they are. Well, I think, I mean, not just not overstepping or overgeneralizing. I mean, think about it. We know this as therapists. They say you're, you're, as a therapist, you should have a therapist or you should have at least been in therapy at one point in time, you know, know what it's like to do the work on yourself before you're trying to supposedly help someone else do the work on themselves. Um, I think that's also why therapy has broken into so many specializations Mm-hmm. Right. So that to some extent, so people don't have to, they think that maybe they don't have to do their own trauma work because they're not a trauma specialist. Right. Um, and obviously I don't agree with that, but <laughs> people can do what they think is appropriate for themselves and their patients. Um, but yeah, doing the work, it's hard right? and it can be painful and it can be shocking especially what I heard you describe is having set up in some ways, right? The, what you described as like a healthy foundation. I was fed, I was clothed. And that self gaslighting where we kind of tell ourselves because I had these things, I'm not allowed to be sad or upset about the things that I didn't have. So then they're not an issue. So, right. I, I had food over, you know, food on my plate and the roof over my head and I was warm and when I was supposed to be warm and cold when, you know, whatever, all those things, temperature was regulated. Um, but that's not true because and is possible and there's power in and. So it's yes, you had some of the basic needs met and some of the basic needs weren't met in, in that emotional space. Because We are emotional beings. We are born with six to eight 
core emotions. Just born with them. Come out, bam, we got them. They're there. And over time, if we're, if we're fortunate enough, we develop into more complex emotions that hopefully someone, some adult is helping guide us, label those emotions, organize those feelings, figure them out, support us through them. But it's hard to organize and support a child through feelings that you weren't organized and support you weren't supported through. Right? There's so many adults that I work with that I'm like, okay, I'll send you a feelings wheel just so we can have, they don't even have a list of basic feelings words. They're like, they have like happy, sad, angry, frustrated, <laughs> like I'm done. Those are my, those are, and I was like, there's so many more feelings than that, right? <laughs> We're going to start with some of the basics and work our way up. But yeah, I think, I don't think you're overgeneralizing in that. I think it, it makes perfect sense that people should, if you know, I don't like saying should, but if it's possible, I think that therapists should also be doing their own trauma work, especially if they're working with any type of population that has trauma, right? And like you said, you can, I do want to make a distinction that you can experience trauma and not necessarily be traumatized, right? There's, if you have enough early childhood protective factors or enough protective factors throughout your life, maybe you're not having some of these dysregulated systems, um, something could have been categorized as a significant event through someone else's lens because I can't tell you you're traumatized, right? I need to, we need to figure out how did that make you feel? That question that therapists love to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you feel that in your body? Those are like the two main questions I'm always asking. How did that make you feel? Where did you feel <laughs> <Right>. in your body? <laughs> right? So that we can kind of figure out, was this dysregulating for you? Mm-hmm. Um, what did, how did you respond to it? So, yeah, generational trauma, transgenerational trauma, transition across generations is, while it's sad, I think it's the most lovely, probably the most lovely thing in therapy that I encounter, mm-hmm. especially when a person who is thinking about like either working with children, having children, becoming a parent or already a parent, because I can just see helping heal, right, the generation that's in front of me and the ones that they'll touch later, right? And I just, I think that's just a beautiful thing because yes, it can be hundreds of years and we can start helping now, right? You know, heal that process or heal from the, heal from that pain, that emotional pain. That's yeah. a really hopeful message. I am in complete agreement. I just love this work because we get to be a part of asking those questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How Absolutely. are you feeling and where is it coming up in your body? Mm-hmm. We get to be a part of rescripting that and, and not telling people don't cry or just be cry. Funny. We're like, yeah, we're like, it's okay. <laughs> cry. We're, like, sometimes you're like in session and they're crying and you're inside like, yes, like they're processing it. Like they're letting those toxins out, bring it on. Mm-hmm. Especially if it's someone who you've worked with and they haven't cried. Right. Ever. Like they say they don't cry at all. Then I never cry. Right. And it's like, Okay, not to say you have to cry to process stuff. I don't want to put that as a label either. And when you do, it's not bad, right? It's not a horrible, you know, horrible stigmatizing thing that you should have never done. It can be a really healing process. That's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. We've been chatting so long today. I think this has been a really great um, episode just talking about trauma and the body. And we've listed some books. So we'll uh, make sure that you all have those resources to be able to refer back to those books if you'd like. Um, We'll create the link in our description and we will 
you know, jump on this couch, break the couch with you again next week. <laughs> That's right. So much more to come. <laughs> All right. Bye, Dr. Jaharti. Bye, Dr. Dalton. If you are looking for a therapist for yourself or your child, you can visit our websites, playfullypsych.com or softheartpsychology.com. We appreciate you joining us this week and can't wait till there's another opportunity to jump on the couch with you next week.